Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 745 for the 28th of May, 2021. This week, buying a $200 film scanner doesn't come without risk. I wanted something that would make quick work of some old medium format film, and this cheap scanner would have done an acceptable job if the designers had done the right thing. In short circuits, the first in a series of security posts will consider steps you can take to safeguard a Wi-Fi router, Microsoft has released Windows 10 version 21H1, but waiting a month or two before installing it seems wise. In spare parts, only on the website, where you live has some effect on the internet speed you can get. The United States is below normal overall, and there are wide variances within the country. There's a new data breach seemingly about every other day. So it's important to see if your email address or phone number has been compromised, and if so, to take some protective actions. And 20 years ago, voice recognition in 2001 was still new, and some systems involved having humans transcribe speech. I call this section a clever concept ruined by ignorant firmware design. So let's start with a reality check. For less than $200, you can't expect a truly high-quality film scanner. But it did seem reasonable to expect better quality than one might have found in, oh, say, a 1997 digital camera. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case for the Wolverine F2D Saturn Digital Film and Slide Scanner. It claims to be able to convert 35mm negatives and slides, 120 medium format film, 127 format film, and microfiche to digital JPEG images. I own a Plustech OpticFilm 35mm scanner, but it can't handle the larger medium format film. I have a lot of old medium format negatives that I'd like to digitize, and I'd hope that even with the anticipated relatively low quality of the Wolverine scanner, it might provide acceptable images from the much larger negatives. I wasn't expecting this humble little scanner to approach the quality of a $2,300 Plustech optic film scanner that can handle medium format film, but I was hoping for images that would be adequate for on-screen viewing. The quality of the images reminds me of what we were able to get from the Sony Mavica. That was the early digital camera that recorded low-resolution, low-quality photos with a great deal of artifacting. The quality was barely acceptable back then. Now it's unforgivable. Artifacting refers to the clumpy texture of an image. The JPEG format discards image data to minimize file size. High-quality JPEG images show very little artifacting. The Sony Mavica cameras, which wrote a dozen or so images to a 1.4 megabyte floppy disk, and the Wolverine scanner both compress the file so much that it's barely usable, even on screen. So is the Wolverine FD2 Saturn good for anything? 
Well, maybe if you understand and you're willing to accept the extreme shortcomings. Even then, probably not unless you have exceptionally low standards. You'll see some images on the TechBiter Worldwide website that illustrate the problem. It is a clever little device because it's really not a traditional film scanner. Instead, it has what is probably about the equivalent of a smartphone digital sensor inside, so the user doesn't have to wait 30 to 90 seconds for a traditional scanner to process the image. That is really clever. The Wolverine captures the image instantly and displays it on a small screen. Pressing one more button writes the image to the device's internal memory or to a secure digital card. But writing the file is where the process falls apart. Instead of processing the image as a lossless TIFF, or even writing it as a high-quality JPEG image, the scanner writes an incredibly small file. When I scanned a 645 format image, the resulting file was just 2 megabytes. The manufacturer claims the maximum scanning resolution is 4,600 samples per inch, so the image should have been approximately 11,500 pixels by 8,300 pixels, and the expected file size would be more than 20 megabytes. Instead, the 2 megabyte file was just 5,164 pixels by 3,876 pixels. But that would have been okay, except for the artifacting. The 645 format is one of several available for 120 and 220 roll film. The number reflects the dimension of the image in centimeters, 6 by 4.5. Other common formats were 6 by 6, 6 by 7, and occasionally 6 by 9. So the file wasn't as large as I had expected, but the smaller physical size would still have created a highly usable image if the manufacturer had not chosen to use extreme downsampling that creates horrid artifacting. A 10 megabyte JPEG would have had virtually no visible artifacting. As a result of poor design choices, the images this scanner creates are unusably fuzzy. And keep in mind, that's from large negatives, not 35 millimeter negatives. Most people who purchase a device such as this will probably want it for 35 millimeter negatives and slides. How well does it work there? Well, it's even worse. When I scanned a 35mm negative for testing, the resulting file was 5,480 pixels by 3,652. That's about 2,600 samples per inch. In fact, that's higher than the setting I generally use on the Plustec film scanner. So the negatives should have been great. And could have been great. The Plustec scanner can scan at 7,200 samples per inch. Doing so, though, takes more than a minute per image. I usually use the 1,800 samples per inch setting because that drops the scan time to about 30 seconds. So why is the Wolverine image so bad, even with the higher resolution? Simply put, it's the file format. The Plustec can save files in lossless TIFF format, and that is what I use. At 1,800 samples per inch, the quality of an image saved as a TIFF exceeds that of the Wolverine's higher resolution, coupled with the extremely lossy JPEG format. It doesn't have to be that bad, and it shouldn't be. Using a high-quality JPEG process, or allowing the user to select JPEG quality, or even better, allowing the user to choose the TIFF format, would eliminate 
most of the problems with that scanner. When you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, be sure to notice the quality of the PlusTech image, even at a lower resolution than that provided by the Wolverine. The Wolverine's JPEG processing also boosts color saturation far too much, giving images a garish look. The images from my PlusTech are TIFF images delivered from the scanner using ViewScan. They have not been processed for color balance, enhanced sharpness, saturation, or any of the other modifications that can be applied later to TIFF images using an application like Adobe Lightroom Classic. For a final comparison, I used a scan of the 35mm film image at 9600 samples per inch. The enlarged image is a bit soft, but keep in mind it's from a 45-year-old 35mm negative and it has been cropped to just the two men at the very center of the image. A good scanning application such as ViewScan can export JPEG images that are far smaller than TIFF images, even when the JPEG output uses high-quality settings. So I tried another scan of an image from a medium-format scanner using the 645 format and outputting a JPEG at 90% quality instead of a TIFF. To perform the scan, I used an Epson Perfection 3200 photo scanner. That's a flatbed scanner that has an adapter for negatives. There is some artifacting in the JPEG image, which I scanned at 1600 samples per inch. Although scanning at 800 samples per inch created an acceptable image, I felt that 1600 samples per inch was a good compromise between speed and quality. You may suspect this already, but I have returned the Wolverine scanner for credit. Bottom line here is one cat. It's unacceptable quality, even considering its low price. I gave the Wolverine scanner a one cat rating instead of zero because the design is clever and with minimal changes, it could easily earn at least four cats. The JPEG process is all that stands between the two ratings. If the manufacturer would simply make some changes to the firmware, so the user would be able to choose outputting images in TIFF format, as well as to have control over the quality of JPEG output, they would have a winner. The Wolverine scanner is available at Amazon, as well as from other retailers, but my recommendation, currently at least, is to avoid it entirely. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation there are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In Short Circuits, over the next few weeks, the first item in Short Circuits will deal with security. This is a huge topic that can be painfully complex, but one that can be dealt with in small pieces by nearly anybody. So let's start with some security tips for your home network. Start with the router. Many routers ship with a username of admin and a password of password. A lot of manufacturers are doing better now, but you should still change the credentials that you use to access the router. In most cases, you'll have to retain the admin username, but replace the password with something long and memorable. 
refer to the documentation that came with the router to find out what the default credentials are. Your router manufacturer may provide an online utility to connect you to the router, but a better option involves using the router's IP address. The address for the router is almost always 192.168.1.1 on home networks. If you're not sure what the address is, open PowerShell or Command Window and issue the command ipconfig, I-P-C-O-N-F-I-G. Look for the line that says Default Gateway. That will be the router's IP address. And by the way, another common address is 192.168.0.1. Many routers come with remote management enabled. Unless you need this, and very few people do, it should be turned off. Some other services should be disabled unless installed applications need them. These include UPnP, Ping, and Telnet. Next, take a look at your Wi-Fi network names. If these include the router's manufacturer, the model number, your name, or your address, change them to something more generic. Make sure the Wi-Fi network is using WPA2 encryption and that the passphrase isn't something that can be guessed. To block the system down more securely, your router might allow you to set times when it's not available. That's a tactic I skip because sometimes I like to have internet access in the middle of the night. Your router may have a guest network, most do these days. You may think it's there just for visitors to use, but it's good for more than that. If you have Internet of Things devices, which often have less than stellar security protocols, it's wise to put them on that guest network. People and devices on the guest network have no access to devices on your primary network. No matter how much testing Microsoft does, it is inevitable that some people will have trouble with new versions of Windows 10. The company has begun pushing out a feature update labeled 21H1. Until the numbering scheme was revamped last year, it would have been known as 2104. After releasing version 2004, somebody in Redmond apparently was worried that people would think the release had something to do with the year 2004. 20 is the two-digit year, 04 is the two-digit month. Normally, I would consider a concern such as that to be silly. But people seem to have to be warned not to use a reclining office chair with wheels as a stepladder. So perhaps the concern is justified after all. In any event, what would have been version 2009 became 20H2. And in case you're wondering what the H stands for, it's half. So H1 is released in the first half of the year, H2 released in the second half. Version 21H1 may install quickly and without problems. That's exactly what happened to the tablet computer I use. But so far, I haven't been able to get it to load on the desktop computer. The installations always fail, so I downloaded the media creation tool and started that process. Downloading took... 12 hours. And this is something that should take no more than 20 or 30 minutes. So I repeatedly tested the internet downlink speed. It was always at or above what the internet service provider promises. The problem must have been at Microsoft's end. And yes, this is an issue I've seen previously. 
When the download ended, I expected to be able to perform an in-place upgrade from Windows 10 to Windows 10, keeping all applications and data files. I've done this a lot of times in the past. But Microsoft had a surprise for me. The dialog that should have offered three options offered only one. Keep personal files and apps was grayed out, not selectable. Keep personal files only, also grayed out, not selectable. So what could I select? I could select only the nothing option. Everything will be deleted, including files, apps, and settings. Well, that obviously was unacceptable, so I canceled the process, and the desktop computer is still running the previous edition of Windows. Given that the previous version is 20H2, the update should have been fast and nearly automatic, requiring only a single reboot. This version is more of a maintenance release than a feature update, but there are a few new features. In fact, there's not much in it for home users because most of the new and modified features are intended for business users and those who work from home. Windows Hello supports multiple cameras, and when the system finds an external camera, it is set as the default device for logins. Windows Defender has been improved. IT system managers will be pleased with improvements in the Windows Management Instrumentation System and the Group Policy Service, particularly when they're dealing with remote workers. Those who are lucky enough to have version 21H1 install quickly and easily, matching my experience on the tablet, may still run into some problems, though. The most common problem, and the one that's received the most irate feedback from users, is a frequent occurrence with updates. Wi-Fi problems occur. The wireless speeds are slow, configuration files may be missing, the computer might not be able to get an internet connection, or the wireless adapter will simply stop working. These kinds of problems can be the result of unidentified bugs, incompatible or damaged drivers, and configuration problems. The network troubleshooter component can often resolve the problems. If not, the only solution might involve uninstalling the update. And that's one reason that a lot of users prefer to wait several months for subsequent updates to be pushed out. Another relatively common issue is one I have faced. Version 21H1 may simply not install at all if the computer is enrolled in the Windows Insider program. This seems to be related to a previous cumulative update that may or may not have been installed. Some users have reported problems with printers following the update, and the printing problem can cause a blue screen error. So overall, if your computer hasn't yet been updated to version 21H1, you might want to decline the update when Microsoft offers it for at least the next couple of months. There's no need to wait before reading spare parts. Visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, and this week you'll find these articles. Where you live has some effect on the internet speed you can get, the United States is below normal overall, and there are wide variances within the country. There's a new data breach seemingly about every other day, so it's important to see if your email address or phone number has been compromised, and if so, to take some protective actions. And 20 years ago, voice recognition in 2001 was still new. Some systems involved having humans transcribe speech. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. 
I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.